Welcome to the Next Mobility Podcast. I'm Christian Prenzler, your host, and on this episode of Next Mobility, I have Ian Wright. He's the founder and CEO of Wrightspeed. Wrightspeed develops and builds electrically driven powertrains for commercial trucks of all sizes. Ian was one of the co-founders of Tesla, where he was the VP of Vehicle Development before leaving to found Wrightspeed in 2005. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Thank you very much. So, Ian, Wrightspeed creates new hybrid powertrains for commercial vehicles. But what are the problems that Wrightspeed is is really solving, and, and how is the company tackling these issues? Um, could you could you point out some of these biggest faults in traditional vehicles, and and which ones Wrightspeed is specifically tackling? Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. So, I think the the garbage trucks are probably the clearest example. They use a heavy-duty diesel engine and transmission that was really designed for long-haul trucks. Um, and then they put them in an urban environment where they're doing a 1,000 cycles a day of full-throttle acceleration up to about 15 miles an hour and then full brakes till they stop. So, you know, where that powertrain would get something in the 6.5 miles per gallon in a long-haul truck, it'll get 2.6 miles per gallon in a garbage truck, and if you put a natural gas engine in instead, it goes down to about 1.6 miles per gallon. So that that hard stop-go urban drive cycle for heavy vehicles is really a poor match for the conventional powertrain, and it's an excellent match for a range-extended EV. Going off of that with, with EVs and, and the propulsion system for the right-speed vehicles, um, I think a lot of people who mm-hmm. might not know about the industry or how much power is needed might just wonder, you know, why not go fully electric? Um, you know, what, what's the purpose of, uh, you know, building on a range extended um, system for the vehicle? Yeah, well, you know, the fact that they're using a lot of diesel per day mean, also means they, they use a lot of energy per day. And so the size and weight and cost of a battery pack to do that national average 130 miles a day, 1,000 hard stops in a Class 8 garbage truck, you know, that is a very, very large battery pack. Um, And if you do the engineering properly, you've got to size the battery pack so that it still does the mission profile at at end of life at 80% capacity. It'll still do it at, you know, minus 20, minus 30 degrees C. Um, And if... And it's got a bit of headroom on top of that, so you're not using 100% um, state of charge range every day. Uh, if you do that, you wind up with a battery pack that you know, is about half the payload of the truck, uses up about half of the space and costs about half a million dollars. But if you use a range extender, then you can package it in the same space where the engine used to be and package all of the powertrain um, with no weight gain over the conventional truck you can do your um, 130 miles a day profile, no problem at all, so long as you've got fuel. Um, battery pack size goes down to about 60 kilowatt hours, so it's pretty easy and light to package and pretty cheap. Uh, and your payback time goes way down. So you know, for, if you did it just with batteries, you're looking at a 20 year plus payback time if you could even make it work. But with the range extender, um, because the battery is by far the most expensive part of the system and it's so much smaller, about a tenth of the size, um, then you're looking at payback times in the three to four year range, and that's that's what makes it economically compelling, and that's what means it's going to you know take off um, and really become you know the way it's done. Definitely, and it sounds like the the way you guys are tackling a lot of these issues is to kind of solve the economics behind the vehicle. Um, and 
you know, another thing that's really kind of unique that some people might not know about Rightspeed is that you guys are using turbine generators. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, you know, why why use a turbine generator over a, you know, traditional diesel generator or something like that? What are some of the advantages there? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, even amongst people that, that do range extender engines, um, nobody uses a diesel. And the reason for that is that in a generator duty cycle where you're running the thing at continuous high power, you can't meet the emission standards. The NOx will be too high. Uh, those diesel engines that might be certified for road use are tested against a drive cycle that has a lot of idling and a lot of low power use in it. But if you run it at continuous high power, it, you can't meet emissions. So um, some everyone that's doing a range extender is using a little um, gasoline piston engine. Uh, and the turbine has quite a few advantages over that. Um, the, probably the, the most obvious one is the power to weight versus durability question. So in garbage trucks, we want, would like the range extender to do 10,000 hours before being overhauled. Uh, and you could do that with a piston engine, but it would be very big and heavy because it would have to be a low RPM engine and low RPM generator. Um, but 10,000 hours is nothing for a turbine engine. And you're talking about something that's a tenth of the weight, a tenth of the size uh, for a 10,000 hours for a given power. So, you know, power to weight versus durability is the, the first one. And then the second one is emissions. You know, turbines can be very, very clean. It's a completely different combustion process. Um, it's a continuous flame with a lot of oxygen, a lot of excess oxygen. So a well-engineered uh, turbine combustor can be very clean, can, can beat the California emissions without using any after treatment at all. And you can't do that with a piston engine at all. And then you get into the, the you know, noise, vibration and harshness things, piston engines running as generators. You know, if you've ever seen a piston engine running on a dynamometer, they're pretty noisy. Um, and it's not just exhaust noise, it's mechanical noise. And so they have to be in a, in a sound enclosure, soundproof enclosure, in order to make the noise acceptable because they will be running at full power when you're not going anywhere, you just stopped at the lights. Um, but turbines are much easier to make quiet because there's only specific um, high frequencies and they're pretty easy to damp. So meeting 65 dBA at 10 meters is pretty easy with a turbine. And then you get into the multi-fuel aspect of it. So turbines don't are, are, are quite omnivorous. You can build turbines that will run natural gas or diesel or both or gasoline or hydrogen or propane or methanol. You know, you can burn all these fuels in turbines with, with very little change to the engine. It's basically basically just changes around the fuel system. Um, and as far as using that fuel system, what are most of your, you know, customers actually using? Are they using, um, you know, natural gas in it or are they using, you know, what's what's kind of the preferred one usually? Yeah, well, everyone would like to use natural gas, but so far all of our early customers really don't have access to compressed natural gas. I mean, everyone's got access to the half a PSI that comes to the building, but they carry it on a vehicle, it's got to be at 3,600 PSI. Um, <clears throat> so yes, there are you know, garbage collection companies that have put in you know, compressor stations and run their vehicles on natural gas piston engines. So they, they would be candidates to run on natural gas but it so happens that all our early customers don't have access to that and so they're burning diesel okay and and but that, that's still delivering them uh, better performance in terms of um, fuel efficiency and you know all the noise and, and rattling and that sort of thing yeah um, actually FedEx has one that runs on, on natural gas with the turbine um, 
uh, yeah, if you run on, well, it doesn't really matter what you run on. The efficiency is the same for a turbine engine. Um, but you, if you do run on diesel, you save about 60% of the fuel. So fuel consumption is about 40% of what it used to be, and the emissions are much lower. Part of the right speed platform and, and the powertrain is the regenerative braking. Um, and so, you know, how much money is that saving uh, operators and, and in terms of, um, you know, how, how deeply ridden is that into the powertrain? Yeah, so that's um, that's very drive cycle dependent. So at one, one end of the scale in a long haul truck, that doesn't really help you much at all. As you might imagine driving down I-5 to Los Angeles, you're just sitting there for hours and hours and hours at 62 miles an hour on a flat road. Mm-hmm. Um, but a garbage truck is the opposite end of the scale. I mean, they're heavy, up to 72,000 pounds, and they're doing 1,000 hard stops a day. So they, some, some of those trucks are chewing up the brakes, completely wearing out the entire braking system in, in less than three months. Gives you some idea how, how hard they're using the brakes. So if you want to do that with regen braking instead, which we do, then you need a lot of power. So we run those four 220 kilowatt electric motors with four speed heavy duty transmissions, uh, one per motor. So we can do regen braking at something north of a thousand horsepower. And, and that's enough with the four speed transmission that you can do pretty much all the normal braking without using the friction brakes at all. But of course, that's some fairly serious engineering because that's a lot of power. Um, and the battery system has to be able to absorb that power that many times and still get the, the 10 year life out of it. So we use a very high power battery system based on uh, lithium titanate cells. You wouldn't use those in a straight EV because the energy density is not very good, but everything else about them is fantastic. The power density, the safety, the cycle life, um, even the fact that you can charge them at high rates down at minus 30 degrees C, you don't have to heat them. So all the energy cells, you do have to heat them. So with those cells that you guys are using, you know, what are, you know, why use something uh, different from, you know, say an 18650 that, that Tesla uses or, or some of those other automotive grade, you know, how does it really differ um, in a commercial application? Well, 18650s were designed for laptops, not automotive. Um, they're, they're, um, they're high energy chemistries because both for laptops and for, for electric cars, you want as much energy as you can carry per kilogram and per, per cubic meter. So they run the, the certain lithium ion chemistries, you know, cobalt oxide, manganese that are high energy, but not high power. Um, we are at the other end of the scale. If you, if you run the payback calculator and you vary the battery pack size, you'll find that you get the shortest payback time with the smallest battery pack because the capital cost of the battery is so high. Um, and so we deliberately minimize the battery pack size to get the shortest payback. But what that means is that we're running very high power per cell. So power density becomes the thing that we're interested in for a range extended EV. And so that's what drives us to use um, the iron phosphate A123 cells that we started with and now the Toshiba lithium titanate for the high power density. And it so happens that, that those high power um, chemistries, particularly the titanate, um, are the best there is for safety. Um, very, very hard to get a battery fire. Um, I mean, you could engineer one, I suppose, but the cells are very, very safe, even when you radically abuse them. They also have a very much longer life than the high energy batteries, and that, that plays into the economics as well. If you're having to replace the battery pack, and that's the most expensive part of the powertrain, 
you know, every you know, three, four, five years, you know, then that makes the, the economics of the thing a lot dodgier. Um, you know, if you can get 10 years out of the battery pack, 10 years out of the whole powertrain, then it's a much, much better deal. And as far as the size of the battery pack, um, you know, you guys have like three different um, sizes of powertrains, but how do you decide the size of the battery pack that you're going to put in? You know, where do you find that happy medium between something too small or something too large um, to really make it work for both the vehicle and for the economics of the owner? Yeah, so we, we've done the, you know, the math on that and, and have a standard offering that is basically the minimum repack size for that application that will absorb the regen power. So for something like a FedEx truck, we do that with one motor, one two twenty kilowatt motor and a 20 kilowatt hour pack, and that will absorb enough regen power from that one motor. For a city bus, we'd use two of those motors, um, two 220-kilowatt motors and a 40-kilowatt-hour battery pack. Um, and then for a garbage truck, we'd scale it up to a 60-kilowatt-hour pack and four of those motors. So it's the same stuff in all those applications. There's just more of it in the heavier ones. Um, now, if the customer wants more battery than that, that's fine. We can obviously put a bigger battery pack in. It's a modular system. Um, the 20-kilowatt-hour is the, is the, you know, granularity of it is actually built of 10 uh, 2 kilowatt hour modules and you string those in series to get your 20 kilowatt hour pack and then you can parallel that you know 20 40 60 80 100 kilowatt hours if you want um, but when it comes down to you know signing on the bottom line they find that the payback time the shorter payback time with the smaller battery is compelling and that's what they all do so far yeah makes sense um and and to kind of go back um and talk about kind of the origins of of right speed you were you were a co-founder of Tesla before then. Mm-hmm. You know what kind of motivated you to kind of pursue this different um, area in the automotive industry and, and to found Rightspeed? Yeah, a lot of complex things. I think um, uh, you, I'm sure all the Tesla people remember the you know the the bad blood between Elon and, and Martin, and that that sort of thing was actually apparent right in the first year of the company that you know wasn't wasn't going to end well. So that was a factor. Um, but I find I'm not, you know, really, um, I mean, I, I love electric cars. They're a lot of fun to drive. I think the Model S is a wonderful thing. Uh, one of my VPs has one. Um, but the economics of that don't really work. It's very, very, very hard to make that work. And I couldn't see a way to do that. Um, but if you get into the commercial vehicles where instead of, you know, you're, you're displacing vehicles that instead of burning 200 gallons a year, they're burning 14,000 gallons a year and doing it very inefficiently. And then suddenly you've got a chance to make, you know, you get all the advantages of electric drive and all the fantastic things about it and the low emissions and everything. Um, but you get it in a way that's economically compelling. And for me, that's that's the, the the magic there because if it is economically compelling, then it will definitely take take off, it will definitely cross the chasm. And in in those early years of right speed, you know, what were some of the goals that you guys were working on, um, and until you got into a point where you were, you know, selling it and manufacturing powertrains for customers, what were some of those tough uh, tough problems to solve? Yeah, there's a couple of big ones. I guess one was that we. We were initially only thinking of medium-duty trucks, and you know, FedEx was our first customer, our lead customer, very good customer. Uh, and they happened to have the biggest fleet in the country, 66,000 trucks. Um, 
but as soon as we got some of those out on the road and got some publicity around that, then people started pestering us to do heavier vehicles, and in particular, um, the Rado Group up in Santa Rosa with their garbage collection fleet were very keen for us to do those, and we hadn't actually thought of doing anything as heavy as that. And so we had to you know, sharpen our pencils and make a few changes here and there and go from a two-speed transmission to a four-speed and beef up the inverters and do a whole bunch of changes. Um, but in the process of doing that, that also gave us the scalable powertrain that we could use the same components everywhere from a FedEx truck through city bus up to a garbage truck. Um, so that was one sort of big change that we didn't initially set out to do the heavier vehicles and with the benefit of hindsight you know, it should have been obvious to us that a garbage truck was the perfect absolutely perfect best first case to do um the other big challenge we had was uh, we started out you know intending to use the capstone turbines which are you know off the shelf as a range extender and we did that in fact in the fedex trucks um but we reached the point where we realized we were going to have to um, build our own turbine engine so we started that project oh, nearly four years ago now so we now have our own turbine engine design and we've we've learned a lot about well we've learned a lot about a lot of things but the two hardest things have been how to make you know reliable multi-speed transmissions and how to make turbine engines so with those turbines um you know how long did it take to really you know, figure out how to build it to meet your needs specifically versus, you know, the, the off the shelf uh, model that you guys were using before. And, and what were some of the challenges there? Well, the off the shelf ones were not carb certified to run on diesel, only on natural gas. And since our customers didn't have access to natural gas, that was a big problem. And then there's the, you know, the straight out cost problem um, that we can build them cheaper than we could buy them. Um, I'm sorry, what was the rest of the question? Um, just about, um, you know, what were some of the biggest challenges with converting it so that it could handle uh, diesel and, and, and some of the needs of your customers? Um, yeah, we we started out, you know, contracting out the turbine engine development to an engineering company on the East Coast, and that, that didn't work out very well. That, that engine design wasn't a success. But now we have a partnership with Borg Warner. And they make they actually make the turbine machinery parts for us, the compressor and 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 turbine wheels and a bunch of the other components. Uh, and that was key because there's a lot of black magic in the in the design and manufacture of the of the actual turbine machinery parts. So having a partner like Borg Warner was a really important step for us. Excellent. And we are going to start talking about semi trucks and long hauls. Um, now, most of our listeners probably know that Elon Musk and Tesla has recently been uh, amping up and, and talking about their upcoming fully electric semi truck. Um, now, Ian, what do you think about that idea of a fully electric truck? And and uh, will be will Wrightspeed be making any moves into the the large semi truck uh, area in the future too? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think the place to start with that is, if you remember, I said a little while ago that 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 conventional diesel engine is only doing 2.6 miles per gallon in a garbage truck, but it, they will do 6.5 to 7 miles per gallon in a long-haul truck, and that's really what they were designed for. So they're running them in top gear and running the engine in the sweet spot on the, on the power efficiency map. That's actually pretty hard to beat. Um, it's the cost of the fuel that you can displace that's the coin you have to pay for the batteries with mm -hmm. and you know the numbers don't really work I mean, you have to well to start with to do 
an average long haul truck's daily um, cycle, you can't carry enough battery for that. Um, you know, we we struggle to put 60 kilowatt hours, find enough room to put 60 kilowatt hours without you know, redesigning the whole vehicle. So, I mean, that, I guess that's why they do design a new vehicle, so they've got enough room for the batteries. But the capital cost of the batteries versus the fuel you can save, that, that those numbers don't really work. Um, very tough. And it's, it's not really possible with the range extended architecture either, um, because that's really intended for the stop-go applications. You'd have to make a lot more continuous power, and you're competing with that diesel running in the sweet spot. You won't save enough fuel to make it worthwhile. So for the longest time, we've been saying, you know, you couldn't really do long-haul trucks um, successfully. But we have, in fact, figured out a way to do it. Um, and that involves, you'll notice there's people talking about platooning, um, the idea that you can, uh, you know, take advantage of, of drafting and get an aerodynamic drag reduction by running tractor trailers pretty close together, kind of like a, a road train without a mechanical connection. So we started wondering, well, why don't you have a mechanical connection? Why don't you pull two or three trailers with one tractor? Um, and that would be a lot more efficient and, and better than platooning. And there are there are three good reasons why people don't do that. Um, you know, the turning circle problem where you, know, you can't get that whole assembly around a sharp corner without running over the street signs. There are stability problems. There's a thing called rearward amplification that makes the, the tail end trailer um, sway a lot more than the, the one at the front. So that's a that's a problem. And then of course, when they're going up hills, you've got one, one 15 litre diesel pulling two or three trailers instead of one, it's gonna be a lot slower. And so it slows down all the traffic in the truck lane. But we figured there's actually a way that we can solve all three of those problems and you know, with electric drive, with the powered axles that we make for the garbage trucks um, we can solve all three of those problems we can you know make the the trailers follow the same path as the tractor we can solve the stability problem and we can add you know 400 horsepower for going up hills per trailer from the battery pack with the electric motors and then recharge them going down the other side using regen braking so i think that's probably the best way to do it and we have a couple of lead customers one here one overseas uh, looking at this now um, not current product for us now, but it uses, we have all the hardware to do it and it takes a bit of control software development. So I think, I think that'll be quite an interesting uh, uh, take on, on the long haul business. And, and as far as that pl platooning and everything, will that require, um, you know, autonomous vehicle technology to really get them in line? Yeah, in our case, we're not platooning. We're, they're actually towed. There's a tow bar, a thing called a converter dolly. So it's a mechanical connection between the tractor, the first trailer, the second trailer, the third trailer. The guys that are doing platooning, um, they're starting out still having a driver in the in the, the second and third vehicles that are in the platoon um, because the autonomous problem is very hard. Uh, ultimately, they want to make them full autonomous, but I think that is actually a very, very difficult technical problem that's going to take a while. And so with that mechanical connection, and, and solving all those problems that you described, you know, how long or how many trailers would one truck be towing? Oh, two or three, I think, is the sweet spot. I mean, okay, so it's you know, it's taking off you know three three trucks off the road for and replacing it with one, and yeah, and kind of improving the uh, efficiency of all three significantly. Yes, that's right. 
and you're still in this case you're still retaining the 15 liter diesel engine but you're getting a lot more bang for the buck out of it and and so um you know making these things you know come to life and put them on the road um a lot of people might be wondering you know when will they see or if you know they might be seeing right speed trucks on the road um you know when are people going to see more and more of these vehicles on the road well, so first thing to note is that Rightspeed doesn't make vehicles and, and is not ever planning to make vehicles. And it's very, very hard to make vehicles and we don't add a lot of value to the vehicle making process. So we make the powertrain only. Um, so you should think of us as being you know, the modern equivalent of Cummins and Allison, the people that make diesel engines and heavy duty transmissions. That's what we make. Um, so you won't see Rightspeed trucks, you'll see other people's trucks. So Mac is the first of the truck OEMs to approach us and want to offer our powertrain in, in their cab chassis for new trucks for garbage applications. Um, we also do retrofits, so the first garbage trucks we've done are you know, retrofitted 2007 Freightliners. Um, but the powertrain will be offered in new vehicles as well, and that's happening already in the, in the first bus order we have down in New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, you will see a lot more of these things on the road, but you might might not know that it's a right-speed powertrain, like just as you might not know it's a Cummins engine in that garbage truck that wakes you up in the morning. And so, you know, in terms of getting these uh, on the road and, and replacing or modifying existing buses and, and uh, garbage trucks, you know, how can someone, um, you know, talk to their, their city manager or, or get someone really involved into looking into this? Um, what do you think is the best avenue for that to, to help get more of these um, more environmentally friendly uh, vehicles on the road? You know, it's funny. I think I think what's actually going to happen is as we roll out some of these vehicles or as our customers roll them out and the people that live in these cities realize that you can actually make them so much quieter and so much cleaner, but the quietness, I think, is going to be a really big deal. And then people will start demanding it, and they'll start complaining about the noise of the old technology. And then as the cities start writing these contracts for private companies to supply a garbage collection service or a bus service, you know, they'll be writing into them, well, here's the noise level you have to meet. And I actually think that's going to be, you know, perhaps the biggest driver of the, of the deployment. Yeah, I mean, the, the operators in the cities will save money on the fuel, but the people that live in the cities don't, you know, that's a bit too indirect for them. But the noise thing is very direct. Um, I, I actually think you, we're going to see heavy duty diesel engines disappear from dense urban environments completely within 10 years. Because there's a better way to do it now, it works, um, it's economically compelling, so why wouldn't you? Yeah, and and as far as, um what right speed is working on and and putting these vehicles on the road you guys uh acquired a, a new factory within the past couple of years i you know how what kind of capacity does that facility have um for right speed and and uh how is that facility working for you guys right now yeah so um it's a wonderful old building it's actually an old um aircraft maintenance hangar on the old alameda naval air station it's thousand square feet built in 1945 is a wonderful, wonderful piece of historic architecture. Um, so we're very happy to have it. But um, we're not at all like Tesla in that respect in that we're not building vehicles and we're not even really building the powertrain. So we designed the whole powertrain and we own all the IP, but we have all the parts made for us by other people, uh, mostly in the US at this point. 
Um, so, for example, we designed our own four-speed heavy-duty transmission, but we don't make any of the gears or shafts or castings or forgings. We don't do any of that in our factory. Right now, we do do final assembly and test of that transmission in our factory, but that's going to be outsourced um, to one of our partners uh, that makes those kinds of things. They are able to do, they don't make all of the parts, but they will do the supply chain bit, get the parts made, bring them in, do assembly and test of the transmissions and ship them, and we won't even see them. So um, our, our model is much more Silicon Valley um, than the conventional manufacturing model. You know, Cisco never sees any of its hardware. That's all made by contract manufacturers and delivered direct to the customer. So we're heading down that path. So the factory actually will keep us um, comfortable for many years. And so at the factory, you guys are, are mainly doing some retrofitting and final assembly um, while other manufacturers and suppliers really, um, you know, take your designs, produce them at scale and deliver them to you. Yeah, we're not actually intending to do the installations either. What we ship is a powertrain kit, either from here or or mostly from here, and some direct drop from the from the people that make the parts to our designs, um, and they get installed wherever the vehicles are, whether that's in a vehicle factory somewhere or where the vehicles are maintained. So our first bus order in New Zealand, the first 57 of those are being repowered. And the balance of them, the powertrains are going into you know, new new buses. So here, what you'll, if you come here, you'll find you know garbage trucks and buses and things. Um, but what we're doing is packaging work. So we're designing uh, the brackets and the wiring harness and the hose kit and everything, so that the powertrain kit, when it when it gets shipped, has everything you need to do the installation. But it's not our intention to do those installations here. And, and as far as these these two different routes, really, with retrofitting existing vehicles and putting them into um, new vehicles that other companies are making, what do you think mm-hmm. is going to be bigger over the next you know five to ten years? Do you think more people are going to be looking for new vehicles with your powertrains or um, looking to kind of upgrade their existing fleets with with a more efficient and more economically efficient um, powertrain? Yeah, it's hard to say. At the moment, um, it's looking like it'll be more new vehicles, but there are a lot of these vehicles out there, um, particularly garbage trucks and buses. The, the chassis body has quite a long life, but they chew up the engines and transmissions. You know, they're so hard on them. The drive cycle for garbage trucks is so hard that they do wear out engines and transmissions a lot more often than they wear out the chassis. Um, so I think there will be a retrofit market probably for 10 years or so. Um, but yeah, I think it, it'll, it'll become more in the new vehicles fairly quickly. Okay. Um, and from, from what I can find, it seems like, uh, right speed has, has raised over roughly 40 million over the years. Um, so I just wondered if you could give a quick update on how the company's um, progressing and, and how it's doing in terms of customers and that sort of uh, side of the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've raised 47 million in equity financing and another 8 million in grants. Um, we're actually in a fundraising cycle right now uh, to raise about another 25. Um, we're at that stage of development where we're just starting volume production. Everything we've done to date, you would should regard as prototypes and low volume. So you know, I'm sure the People at Tesla remember how, how traumatic it was, you know, actually starting to ship real production for the first time. So that's where we are. 
So um, that's why we need money for working capital. Um, in terms of customers, we've got just under $60 million in backlog, which is orders um, that we need to fill by the middle of next year. And we have about $660 million in the pipeline. About half of that is garbage trucks, about half of that is buses. About a third of it is international, the rest is in the US. Um, that's, that's, we, we get a lot of inquiries um, for people that want to use our powertrains and all, all kinds of things, things you would never think of. Uh, some of those don't work. So, you know, we totted it up recently and we've had about, in the last couple of years, we've had about $2 billion worth of inquiries and of that, about $660 million is well qualified as in, you know, it's a good application. Um, good match for what the customer needs. Uh, they've got big enough fleets. Uh, the payback time is, is short enough. Um, so, you know, we'll turn those into orders. And so in terms of what it takes to, to turn that backlog into, you know, products that you're, you're shipping to customers, what, what's the necessary next steps for the company to, to really fulfill all those orders over the next couple of years? Yeah, so we have to scale up production, um, and that is largely for us a supply chain problem. We have a very complex supply chain, supply base. Um, you know, we designed the whole powertrain, we own all the IP, but there's about 2,500 parts, um, and a significant number of those are custom parts that we design. And, and so finding the right suppliers for all those different parts. Uh, and suppliers that can scale as we scale up, and sometimes they can't. You know, some of these suppliers can make gears for us quite happily if we only want 50 to 100 to 500, but when we want 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, they can't. So, you know, growing and maintaining the supply base is the biggest challenge to scaling up. Well, great. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us on the next mobility podcast today. And uh, it's incredible to hear about what, what right speed is building and, and working on. Um, and we look forward to hearing uh, more developments and exciting projects coming out of the company. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of next mobility. Next week, we will have Carrie Morton, the deputy director of M city discussing the future of autonomy and a connected vehicles at the M-City Testing Grounds at the University of Michigan. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends or subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. Here's that preview of next week's episode. We know that the companies are building some of their own uh, elements of M-City in their own test facilities, but ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, a GM product needs to interact with an automated uh, Honda, BMW, Toyota, Nissan, Ford. Um, so M-City is that neutral territory where we can uh, look beyond the horizon at what's next and bring these vehicles in together and work together. And then, of course, around wrapped around the facility, uh, we have these on-road deployments. Once the technology is mature, we can start to deploy them in the wild, if you will, on campus and in Ann Arbor, as we're already doing. Uh, and there's a tremendous amount of value in that because uh, the shared experiences of these companies are very important. And then um, I would say, finally, it's the overall research that we're able to apply to that beyond the technical solutions. So um, while they may have their own uh, testing elements, they realize, these companies realize that they're part of a much larger ecosystem. And being able to come together and prove out the technology together is really uh, quite important. 
Music for the next Mobility Podcast was provided by Jack Mahurl. Album cover art was designed by Sydney Yee.